Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Straight From The Hot Tap. This is a slightly different episode as Josh and Johnny were not available for recording, both chained to their various employments and able to prize themselves away to talk nonsense on the podcast. It's also possible that Johnny is halfway to North America on his kite surf board, having been camping in some pretty British weather last week. Anyway, Matt, Lou and I attempt to fill the void, and on this episode we tackle some big subjects, parenthood, or lack of in Matt's case, the trans debate, and we fill in for Josh with some community news from different places fairly unsuccessfully. In the guest segment, I interview Sam Lupson, an old colleague at Taunton, and get a fascinating insight into the world of the 18-30s holiday rep. And Matt also gives his thoughts on enforced military service. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share and importantly subscribe on CastBox. If you don't, well then why not head to Benidorm for a 200 person bar crawl instead. I'm Matt. And I'm Lou. I'm Johnny. I am Josh. And I'm Matt. And this is straight Straight from the hot setter. We were just talking about a really interesting subject about having children. There's nothing interesting about having children. (laughs) (laughs) There's lots of interesting things about having children. Obviously, like, you guys both have children. I don't have any children that I'm aware of, Um, or at least that I've been connected to. (laughs) Now, there's a story, essentially. There's a story which will remain off the record. What's really interesting is hearing about what the reward that you get from having children is versus the biggest challenge of them. I have absolutely no responsibilities in life. Like, I have a girlfriend and I have myself. But beyond that, I can do whatever I want. I have no restrictions. I have nothing except what I want to do. How much money have I got? What can I do? But you guys are in a different situation because you have families, you know, and like that's really interesting to me because I spent my whole life dodging any kind of restriction and basically rebelling against any kind of social model that was imposed on me. What do you think that brings to your life? Of what it's brought to my life, I suppose there's premature aging, poverty, drink problems, nagging anger issues, all the good stuff, really. No, I mean, well, listen, <laughs> Matt, that's no, great. When you watch Evelyn and, or Christian at some sporting event or some school debating thing or some presentation, how proud are you of them? What actual good kids they are, you know. No, no it's, it's really nice, yeah. You know, and they would take the piss, and I take the piss of mine all the time, and <laughs> their detentions and their ridiculous behaviour. But honestly, you can find aspects of every child that you're really, really proud of. I think, for me, when you get over the heavily dependent years... Yeah. Once you're done with the nappies in the push chairs and the car seats and all that shit yeah i think that's what i found the most difficult was that the the kind of endless just faff constant just kind of feeling like you just couldn't do anything spontaneously i found that quite challenging but is there a moment when you're like cleaning the vomit from the car seat in the parking (laughs) lot of a national trust building as the heavy rain lashes the side of your car and you realize i forgot my wallet as the kids scream around <laughs> you. Do you ever go, I just want to open a bar in Barbados. Matt, were you there? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just telling you. Yes, every flipping time it's happened. <laughs> like, what am I actually doing? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I always thought that if you were 40 and you didn't have any kids, you were kind of like a weirdo. But 
now I've realized, no, there's so many people like that, you know, <laughs> yeah. especially where I live. There's everyone, no, no one has any sense of responsibility at all. Perhaps that's why US has the biggest homeless population in the developed world. Now, you know, I am just coming towards my 40s. Um... <laughs> I thought we were all the same age. Actually. <laughs> Yeah, there is an indeterminate are. age. It's a bit like <laughs> when she dies, we have to chop her leg off and count the rings to find out the true age. I've just crashed into my 40s like a Japanese bullet train being derailed <laughs> at 200 miles an hour and smashing into a small farmhouse on a paddy field outside of Osaka. <laughs> so we think now I'm a bit older. And, you know, my kids are starting to find their independence. I'm actually starting to find my life again. And I, I actually bloody love it. It's just like a breath of fresh air, actually. So, yeah. You go through phases with children. It's like the highly dependent years and then the medium dependent years when they start going to school and you go, Woo-hoo-hoo, three hours off a day. That's great. You know, and then and they become a bit older and you think, oh, they're actually making their own way and they're doing their own thing a bit more. It's quite nice. Yeah, it's it's nice to see them learn to be themselves. I think, and it's and it's nice to to see them become a bit more independent, perhaps as well. What is your greatest hope versus your greatest fear for your kids? God, big one. I really like to ask the big ones, Matt. That's a big question. My greatest hope is that they're they're happy. I know that sounds really trite, but doesn't sound trite at all. Sounds like an honest answer. Be happy. I don't care whether they're academic or obviously I really want them to be academic because I was quite academic. But I just want them to do something in life that makes them happy and feel fulfilled and like they're happy doing a job and they find peace. Really. Yeah, I think that's true of most people, isn't it? I think yeah, with Christian Evelyn, I suppose I want them to be themselves i don't want them to feel the kind of pressures and stresses and do you know that kind of you see it more in girls and boys maybe that's just the girls i'm I'm around more but i don't want them to feel anxious about what other people think of them i don't want them to feel pressure to conform you know i want them to follow their own path and be themselves really i think that's massively important it won't be easy at all because i think society puts certain pressures on you doesn't it but i think at the very least they can get to uni or whatever without too much drama that would be a good achievement really if it was me i would say to my kid listen you're going to become an investment banker and you're going to be making (laughs) a lot of money and i basically consider myself the architect of your life so i'm expecting at least 60% of those earnings to be sent to me at the first of every month. As I get older and my physical life becomes more difficult, I'm expecting a lot of things from you. This is how we all start off and then they get their bloody first report card from school and you're like, oh, fuck. I'm going to be like, listen, listen, I've drawn up this plan here which details what I think are reasonable expectations of you. <laughs> and um, I don't think it's too much to ask, frankly, that you adhere to the minimum requirements. And, oh, oh uh, son, no eye contact. Thanks. And uh, dad's going to go now. I'm going to go and smoke this big, fat Monte Cristo cigar. But I want you to think about what I've said to you. And also, you're not allowed to smoke ever. 
Yeah. Just think about what I've asked you to do and how reasonable it is. Feel free to get back to me. My door's open anytime. I'm going to be leaving for Miami tomorrow, but you know how to reach me. <laughs> to talk to my PA, yeah, book a slot. You know my assistant. You've got her email. You may have a couple of brothers and sisters you don't know about yet to be determined. <laughs> they have also been given the same reasonable set of expectations. So anyway, <laughs> ciao. that would be how i would deal with being a parent is it yeah sure christian would like that speech matt christian would love that yeah (laughs) i think though like we've kind of covered covered this ground a little bit before but there are times where you just think i'm not qualified for this shit you just don't know how to handle it you obviously know about the imposter syndrome right oh yeah massively but i think with parenting you don't as much get imposter syndrome, you just get incompetence syndrome. You just actually <laughs> you know. don't know how to respond to yeah. a question. I'm like, you know, really awkward ones. I don't even know what to say to that. My mind goes blank. Like, I'm not even sure I can think of the answer for myself. Never mind explain an answer to you. Listen, one of the really interesting things that both your children are going to have to deal with is the fact that they're going to be coming of age in an immensely changing world that we probably would not even recognize very clearly. We grew up in the safety of the 90s. These kids are going to be growing up in a world, the values of which are profoundly changing and the physical attributes of of which are, if we're not careful, going to become very different. So it's going to be a very interesting experience for them. I think it's going to be a really hard experience for them. Well, yeah. Because we did have it easy in the 90s. Fuck yeah. Because there was no social media. Things were sort of fairly easygoing and not too much pressure, really. And I think the social media part is a massive thing. And we really didn't have any of it. And yeah. Then, now I think it is a massive thing. It's right. is, is enormous. It is, yeah. it is ridiculous. I feel really worried, actually. Just take a snapshot of time, so 1996. If you were just to like go back in time to 1996, just on one randomly chosen day. I do it every single day, Matt, as I rewrite endlessly with deep regret the series of dramatic mistakes I've made that constitute my life. I've given over. <laughs> <laughs> the constant series of misjudgments wow. and poor decisions yeah. that have ended with me being 42. I know. Without yeah. family. You do have an investment portfolio, so come on. I do that. have an investment portfolio, Matt, and an incredibly hot girlfriend, and an IMDb page that I can click through over five minutes. So, you know, I've obviously made some great decisions. I'm clearly one of life's winners. But if you were to take a, you know, take a random day, literally, just, you just turn up and you're an invisible orb in, the, in your bedroom or whatever... What are you going to see? You know, what, what are the stresses that we, were you experiencing in 1996? What were the anxieties that were going around your mind? Because I can tell you rapidly. Go on. I just basically thought on any given moment in 1996, I thought, how am I going to cope with life being such a complete loser? I'm not good at anything. I'm pretty ugly. All I want to do is go back to London and have a kind of exciting life in the city because I hated where I was living, hated it. Yeah. And I was totally unhappy there. 
I was absolutely miserable. I couldn't get on with anybody. And I just knew that I was just the biggest loser ever because I wasn't good at sport. I wasn't very attractive and I had nothing going for me. I like making up stories. I loved it. I'd live for it. But I had no idea of how to turn it into a career that one could live by. There was also some bad stuff as well. I mean, yeah. I mean, <laughs> aside from those good things, there was some bad stuff. Do you know what I remember, Matt, being... Sorry, then, I, then I'll shut up because I've just, I've just had a cup of coffee before this. I, was it a normal cup of coffee, was it? For espresso Matt, I don't... You should know by now. Espresso in one cup. You should know by now that I don't do anything normally. Right? No, this is true. Do you know what the biggest terror in my life was in that time? Having to do CCF. <laughs> I just found the whole thing funny. I, I don't know. I just found it totally miserable. Anyway, what was going on in you guys' heads? Hold on, what's CCF? Combined Cadet Force. This stupid, unbelievably moronic requirement to do this stupid military service. And it was actually really instructive to me. Do you know what? I take it all back. It was a great experience. It was incredibly instructive to me because along with some of the other worse aspects of Taunton School, it really taught me one incredibly good lesson distrust any form of authority because every single form of authority you'll ever come into contact with in this life is absolutely corrupt to the core and <laughs> never to be followed all do of you it know what? I, I quite like that mantra because it's for, actually do you know what's interesting so my commanding officer in the raf section of combined cadet force rather ceremoniously demoted josh and i there was a series of incidents, but it culminated in breaking a, an, an evening curfew and being discovered with girls in our tent. It has to be said that nothing was going on with these girls, which was made it more annoying in a way. Because like, if you're going to go out, you want to go out in style. You want to be yeah. in some kind of massive orgy. You want to literally have been literally caught in someone's vagina. I'm not joking, Matt. That would have been a good story. You want to be balls deep in one, sniffing coke off the other one. Yeah, you want to be like at least doing coke. We kind of got rather ceremoniously demoted and it was quite a big deal being promoted. It came with a few responsibilities and also some perks. But anyway, the guy that did the demoting is now enjoying some uh, time at Her Majesty's pleasure. Terrified of libtards and communists taking over Europe? Do you watch your own military become more and more useless day by day? Well, why not join the French Foreign Legion? La Légion étrangère is Europe's most badass and highly trained band of fighters. Joining will guarantee you the opportunity to crush rebellions, kidnap murderous dictators, and invade small nations that your own army can only dream of fight alongside the very best or maybe worst the world can offer. Think the Harlem Globetrotters with machine guns and RPGs. Everyone welcome except those with varicose veins. Allez la Légion étrangère, aux armes! Doing the CCF, I'll never forget having to parade ridiculously on the fucking front garden and watching a helicopter arrive. And this old guy getting out of it like Douglas fucking MacArthur arriving at Inchon <laughs> and addressing the 
motley collection of recruits. This is what he says. Boys, do you want your school to be taken over by communists? <laughs> and I remember thinking at the time, if you think that's a bad thing, I know it's a good one. I'm just going to spend my life doing exactly everything against people like you. And do you know what? I was proven right over and over again. But do you feel that if there was ever a situation when there was an invasion and there was a call for taking up arms in the fight against tyranny, do you feel like you'd have picked up any tips from your time in the CCF? Well, they taught a few good lessons, like the use of weapons, and that was good. I love handling a weapon. There you go. Do you... (laughs) A loaded weapon? (laughs) What's your guy's opinion towards your kids vis-a-vis authority? Exactly the same as you, actually. Really? Yeah, 100%. Question, question, question. Never just do as you're told. Yeah. Always. Well, I would like my children to do as I tell them to, but they don't. That's like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty fucking shit at the moment, <laughs> if I'm honest. I mean, I mean, being that you guys live in a... What I can only describe as a Tory hellscape, <laughs> run above all by a man who does the best clown impression in the Western Hemisphere, and who somehow <laughs> has managed to get himself elected on a very strong mandate, uh, and is the closest Britain has ever got to somebody we used to have as president. I can only imagine that telling your kids to question authority when the authority in question is doing everything it can to impoverish the new generation. I can only imagine that being a good thing. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Go on the news. You know, 1996, randomly pop into your life. What were you doing? What were you worrying about? How old what was, was, you, what was your What were your anxieties? I had no anxieties at 18. I was quite happy. Was it take part in the hunt or go to, to go to play polo? No. Is that the kind of upbringing you had? A bit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hold on. What's your social background? My family from Burnley, farming family. Are they? Yeah. Are they like... Upper class farmers or regular farmers? No, regular. Well, regular farmers. Both. So my grandparents had um, a milk ground in Burnley, but my great grandfather was head of the NFU and quite a partier. And a... How did the generations change so much? My grandma and grandpa decided to move to Cheshire because the land is much better for farming. You mean the land is flatter for playing polo? <laughs> Mm. That's what it was, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we just took up. As I was growing up, yeah, we had horses. Matt says I have a privileged country lifestyle, and I just thought I worked really hard. Actually. I only do that to wind you up, you know. Yeah, you probably don't. I can tell. Yeah, <laughs> no, genuinely, like Matt, I've, I've never in my life met anybody that kind of grafts like Lou does. The most resourceful person I've ever met. This is Straight From The Hot Tap, special guest interviews. So this is yet another interview from Straight From The Hot Tap. On this particular interview, we're going to be having a conversation with Sam, uh, Sam Lupsom. He was a colleague of mine at Taunton, and like all the other guests we've had on the podcast the one common thread is that sam's journey from those early days in a leafy independent school in the west country to where he is today is very different to a lot of us that theme of finding our own path 
of traveling, both in terms of our careers and also physically, is very interesting. Welcome to the podcast, Sam. Thanks for having me on. I'm, uh, I'm loving the shows. I've, uh, I was driving down to Portugal the other day. It was a nine-hour drive, and uh, I had, had them on all the way there and some of the way back, actually. No, they really, really great job. Brilliant. Thanks for that, Sam. Yeah, I think the audience is very much in two parts. The people that listen to it by accident and then turn it off pretty quickly. Uh, and then there's the ones that become dedicated fans. So I'm very much glad that you're in the latter category. And I think one thing that's been quite interesting is talking to people that have been listening is how, despite the fact that we're all now in our 40s and have kids and so on, we, we still haven't grown up one bit from being 17 at, back in Taunton all those years ago. No, absolutely not. Sam, tell me about your journey. Obviously, you know, you're the what year, two years below me at Taunton. And tell me a little bit about your life since uh, leaving all those years ago. Yeah, well, it's a long, long time ago, but still, to be honest, feels like yesterday. I took a little bit of a different tact coming out of school, and that was probably down to a lot of the sick form that I had there. I was, I was living in a flat, and it was different when I was there. And the last thing, especially after two years of living in a flat, the last thing I wanted to do was go to uni and be around a load of people that had never lived on their own before and my family were in worked a lot in the travel industry with companies like Club 1830 and Intersun and stuff and it was always a big thing of mine about moving to Spain. I got the opportunity to to have an interview in with a company called JMC which was um, since then turned into Thomas Cook and it was all part of that that sort of crowd. Yeah without telling anybody at school and shot up to Birmingham for an interview and, and got offered a job in Menorca. So at the time when everybody was doing their like UCAS forms and go, heading off to university and I got dragged into the office one day and said, you know, said, you haven't handed in your form yet. I said, no, I'm, I'm going to go and work. I'm going to go become a holiday rep. Much to the uh, dismay and shock of it. That's what I did. And literally three days out of leaving school, headed off with my suitcase and I never really looked back. I did one stint back in the UK for a few years. But after having my daughter, we just realised that yeah, it was no life for us there, and we headed back to Spain. What you mean, Sam, is your tan finally started to fade, wasn't it? And you thought, you know what, I can't be looking in the mirror and seeing this pasty apparition anymore. I need to get back to the sun. Do you know what? It was probably more like, I can't be bothered with paying this ridiculous council tax that you got in the UK. <laughs> it was like, the bills were just coming out of my ears. And I was like, no, I'm just going back to Spain. Let's, let's leave all this behind. And yeah. If anybody's out there working for you know, the council tax, then come and find me. My mum was still out here. She followed me over to Spain quite a few years after I originally moved there. And she literally just said one Saturday, one Monday morning, why don't you just come back over to Spain? And my girlfriend, she'd lived in Salou for a number of years as well and spoke fluent Spanish. And we were due to be moving house on the Friday in Plymouth. And I said on the Monday night, you know, should we just go back to Spain? Instead, she went, yeah. So, you know, with a six-month-old and a dog, Tuesday, Wednesday, we sold all our stuff and what we didn't want, we yeah, by Friday we were gone. It was um, it was that simple and wow. something you, you could have done before Brexit, but unfortunately it's, <laughs> it's not as easy as that now. Well, what about your roots, Sam? Where, where are you from originally? Originally, uh, Watford. I moved down to the West Country when I was about five or six years old and I was, you know, we came from a family that my stepdad at the time was a director for ILG, which was Intersun and, and Cooks and Club 1830 and my mum, she had a company called Snazaroo that did face painting. And okay. at the time, she had lots of concessions. She was doing face painting in fancy dress and stuff like that and traveling all around the UK at different Butlins place, you know, Butlins camps. Mm. And we had concessions on all of them. And the one down in Minehead wasn't going particularly well. So we originally sort of moved down from London and rented a place in Minehead while she sort of got the camp back up and working. And then... 
they liked it. That's why I ended up going from, to Tornham School. God, it was it was a big difference from crappy little schools you, we, I was going to up in, in Kent and Watford area. And mm. then suddenly I've been sort of stuck in a boarding school, you know, with a six-year-old, seven-year-old with a little Cockney accent. It was like, this is completely out of my comfort zone. But I, I'll never forget the first day there, there was a um, fire in the boarding house. That was a legendary so, incident at the time. I went to Taunton Junior School. It would have been in 1990, uh, I guess. And the very first people I met were Jonathan Robinson and Dominic Smart. I was introduced to Dominic as the boy who burnt the school down. Yeah. <laughs> I was out in the playground. I'll never forget this. I was out in the playground and, you know, suddenly I looked up at my room. You know, back in those days, you had like five, six kids to a room sort of thing. And, uh, Suddenly there's smoke coming out of it. And then two minutes later, a fire engine comes flying around the corner onto the playground. I'm sat there thinking, bloody hell, you know, these posh schools, they do it really realistically, these uh, fire <laughs> drills. drills. I'll never forget the one point I, I turned up to school. We had these things called Exiat bags, yeah. which, you know, every three weeks when you go home, you had your little rucksack. So all the kids had these nice little rucksacks and bags to get to travel bags and whatnot. I, I turned up with a Club 1830 plastic bag. Nice. It melted. It's amazing, you know, the little things you remember from over 30 years ago now. Coming into Taunton and it being someone that was, you know, always around sort of North London and, and Kent area, coming down to Taunton was, you know, quite a big culture shock. When um, you say culture shock, what's, what's your recollection of that? In a weird way, it was big. Going from a little comprehensive in Luton or Biggin Hill, you know, I was in a tiny, tiny little comprehensive school and coming into Taunton School, it was just massive. It was quite daunting, but... Apparently, I sort of was okay with it, and it was just a very different way of life. You know, I completely understand it now. My mum was travelling a, a huge amount. My stepdad was all over Europe travelling. It was best for me, and I, I got so much out of it. I started off as boarder, and then when I was about 10, 11 years old, said to my mum, you know, there's a, there's a bus every day or something. I'll, I'll get that, because we, we lived in Minehead. And after about two years, I said, no, I want to go back to boarding. You mentioned a minute ago, it's that idea that your path is predetermined for you based on a set of processes that happen from when you start education how you progress through it and then how you go in, into the big wide world and it was often seen as quite strange when people didn't follow that path I mean I personally remember speaking to a guy in my year about UCAS and asking him which uni he was going to and he said oh I'm not going to go and I, and I remember being absolutely shocked that somebody had made that decision. I know exactly where that happened for me when I was 16 I, I moved into a flat quite close to the school, I somehow managed to give it to my mum and said, look, it's cheaper for, for me to go in a flat on my own at 16 than paying the boarding fees. And then at the end of two years, we sell the flat. And she just looked at me and went, yeah, forget it, you know, as if I'm going to put you into a flat. And then she phoned me the day of my biology GCSE and said, actually, it's not a bad idea. You know, it would save quite a lot of money. And by that afternoon, I'd had three picked out that I think were fantastic. And it happened, but it got to about a couple of months into lower sixth. She phoned me one day and said, look, you know, the school's getting pretty expensive. Would you go to Richard Hewish? So I said, okay, yeah. I had a few friends who also went there and I uh, said, yeah, why not? I'll give it a go. And I went there for about three weeks in total. And But it, it completely <laughs> opened up my eyes of there's another world, you know, because don't get me wrong, the facilities and the, the education was fantastic. I did get, you know, you do your GCSEs, you do your A-levels, you go, you do your upper form, you go to university and that's mm. it. And then suddenly I'm at Hewish's and they're going, you can do this and there's this type of thing. And you can go traveling here and there's a, there's a thing called a gap year and this, you know, and it was like, bloody hell, it's a big wide world out there. And I ended up going back to Taunton. I, I got a phone call from the headmaster and 
basically I, I did a lot with the theatre at the school and there was only like two of us that knew how the place was wired up. And I got a phone call saying, look, you know, we know you've left, but so is the other guy. And we've got A-level a and GCSE drama practicals coming up. Would you come back for a job? And I went, no, I've been in that school for, you know, since I was seven. I said, I will come back on a scholarship because if I don't, then nobody in that school knows how that place is run. So I ended up, somebody that never actually did drama, I ended up back on a drama scholarship. Um, <laughs> that's, that's good grifting, Sam. I made a fortune out of that place. It was, you know, we <laughs> did school discos and movie nights and everything like that. I also lost my, my dad during the, the lower sixth and, you know, I was off for a couple of months or so then. And mm. I mean, I was doing A-level Spanish. I knew I was going to go to Spain. At one point I was like, bollocks to A-level Spanish. I'm, I'm going to go to Spain. I'll learn it out there. Mm-hmm. Of course I did. I sort of lost interest in the whole educational side of it then and, and just wanted to get on with life and the repping side was an easy way for me to to get out to Spain and yeah. you know I, I learned a huge amount just from that first two years while I was repping and I, I, I did two summers in Menorca and then moved over to uh, Benidorm. Listening to your talk Sam that, that I'm finding interesting is the fact that at a relatively young age you had a real sense of independence I certainly wouldn't have been able to, you know, come up with such clarity of thought at that age. Where, where did that come from? My mum was travelling a lot, and I used to travel quite a lot with her. So there was times when she was working that I'd have to get on and do things. And from a very young age, I was going over and spending time with Club Eighteen Thirty reps from the age of five. And so I was always sort of brought up in that that family atmosphere of where you know you just get on and do things, and you'd find yourself and and. I was good at making decisions myself, but yeah. I've always been one for go with your gut. Yeah. Um, you know, I've made a lot of decisions in my life. A lot of them have been the wrong decision, but I'll stand by it. I think I've been like that as long as I can remember. Yeah. Yeah. My summers were from you know, from 10 years old, right? We go and work in the factory, at, you know, making face paints and stuff like that. And yeah, even some of the teachers had said it to me and said, you know, you've sort of almost outgrown, especially when I was in upper sixth, you know, you've yeah. outgrown the school. The thought of going into uni and having to do the whole educational side again and, and being with people that were in their first time of being independent, yeah, it, it wasn't for me. And the repping life was a, a big eye-opener. And I saw a lot of 18-year-olds, you know, come over there the first time abroad and, you know, they were stuck in a situation where you, you really were thrown into it. You'd go back in the winter months and tell people what you did and then nobody would believe a word you said. <laughs> you know, it was it was that sort of industry. I think we'll definitely come on to that in in a second. Looking back, then, what memories do you have of Taunton itself? The town was beautiful. I think it probably is going to sound bad, but a lot of it was down to the nightlife. You know, the, mm. the times we had out growing up. You know, trying to get into was it Della's Wharf or there was yeah, a, there yeah, was a yeah, bar. What was the bar behind Debenhams? Miller's. Yeah, you know, yeah. trying to get into there. Have you got any ID? No, we're taught in school up a sixth when you're trying, you know, you're a fifth yeah. form or whatever, you know. <laughs> Just generally walking around the town and I was massively into my cycling then and it was a good place to grow up. And, you know, that mix, you've got three big private schools there mm. mixed with a town, ta- you know, into one town. I think it's quite a unique, unique situation in a place that size. And so it was also quite a cosmopolitan place I found in, in a lot of areas as well. And yeah, you had the you know the banter with with the locals and say, "Oh, you're a public school geek and whatnot." But it was a great place to be. But certainly, the nightlife was um, was what set it off for me. I, I, I we used to have some good nights out in in Taunton, and yeah, I wouldn't mind going back for one more. Well, I went back for a reunion uh, a little while back, and I was dreading it. Being honest, I, I 
very much of the mindset that I've been there, done that, turned my back on it now, moved on with my life. Wasn't that keen on seeing certain people, as a lot of people think as well. But to be honest, it was great. It was really good. It was like we'd all grown up. All the niggles of the past had been forgotten. And it was yeah. just fun, you know. You touched on it a little bit already, uh, that idea of fitting in. You know, I, I found if you didn't fit in, life could be quite difficult for you. It doesn't strike me that you fitted in in some respects, but yet your experience seems to be very positive. I wasn't the, the typical public school family, you know, that, that parents lived around there. But I don't think a lot of the people were from the boarding side of it, to be honest. Mm. There were kids there live literally all around the world. Mm. And I think that's where I fitted in most. That's probably why I wanted to go back to being a boarder rather than in the yeah. day school. Look at my mates now that were boarders there. They're literally all around the world and doing all sorts of crazy, wacky stuff. And, you know, you found that not all of them, don't get me wrong, and a lot of the day boys, they, they moved off. I think from the boarding side, that was easier for me to fit in. And I did it from a young age. You know, I was I was there. I think it was seven. I always tell my mum six just to wind her up. But it was um, <laughs> there from a, a very young age. And, you know, I grew up with it. So everybody mm. that was in that school were like, you know, brothers and sisters to me. I know that I could turn up to probably half a dozen people's doorstep, you know, without mm. announcing and just be there. And, you know, yeah. I, I still get calls every so often. People I haven't spoke to in years. And it's like we haven't sort of left. It was a very mixed culture, but it was the boarding side that I think was the mixed side of it. So, 18 to 30s then, Sam, that is one of those industries that is shrouded in myth and legend. Yeah, they are. And I'll tell you for now, most of them are absolutely gospel truth. Um, <laughs> and that's the scary bit about it is there was like Thomas Cook, Club 1830, JMC, they're all part of the one company and all mixed together. So a lot of the staff, you know, might go and do a summer in Ibiza uh, with Club 1830 and then do a winter with Thomas Cook, for instance, somewhere else. And then do the next summer as like a family side. I was 18 when I started, so I wasn't allowed to actually do the adult mainline stuff. I was a kids rep for the first four months, which I'm suddenly shoved in front of a, a whole group of kids on holiday and um, told to entertain them. So that sounds you know? like you've been missold there, Sam. So, you know, you leave school, you're, you're age 18, you know, let's face it, you're thinking booze and women. Yeah. And instead you're dealing with screaming children. The kids reps probably... <laughs> You know, they've got the worst reputation out of all of them. It was... Um, <laughs> That's really sure as a parent. I literally went on the, the interview in Birmingham. There was 54 people in that interview. So you do things like, you you know, you're asked to do a dance or do a public speak and whatnot. There's 54 people there. Mm. Four of them were guys. Two of them were gay. And I was just, odds on for this season, it's going to be a fun <laughs> season. You know, I was very lucky in my first year in, in Minorca because it, it's a small island um it's mainly a family sort of resort and you know we had a lot of fun it was still quite a new resort for the industry Mm. the second year they tried to change Mallorca uh, Menorca into a bit of a Mallorca and Ibiza you know so we're in this tiny little resort called Callum Forcat in the um the east coast and they suddenly flooded the the management staff with all ex Club 1830 and Mallorca reps and they were like come on let's do a bar crawl and let's do party nights and we're going to do two cabarets. And uh, I was like, this is, you know, this is Menorca, guys. You know, we, we, everybody comes out here with two kids and just wants to sit on the beach every day. I mean, look, we did it. We pulled it off. And the whole repping scenario, forget what you see on the TV. It isn't like that. It is, there is a party scene to it. Don't get me wrong. But you very, very quickly have to learn how to handle yourself and how to deal with it. Yes, you're going to go out. You're going to go and do a bar call in Benidorm with 300 people on it. Not so much these days, but you used to. 
and they're all going to want to get you drinking. You completely come out of yourself as a human being because you're absolutely thrown in the deep ends, probably like no other industry out there in the world. You're asked to do things that normally you'd, you'd expect loads and loads of training for, you know, speak, doing sales in front of three, you know, 300 people, then going taking on buckle, then going picking up a thousand people at the, the airport checking them all in, dealing with all the problems, then dealing with someone that's just died or something like that. You know, it was, yeah. it was great. It was, I remember coming back and, and chatting with a friend of mine, meeting him in, in Taunton actually over that winter. And he said, Sam, you're like a different person. You know, it's, I was always the person sort of behind the stage coming after a, uh, a season in Menorca. It was like, I want to be on the stage and I, I can do this. And, you know, I somebody told me, I am the stage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, we were doing cabaret. Yeah, I got on the stage because you did cabaret, you had to do less work during the night. So it was, um, I was like, yeah, put me in for that, that, that. I think by the time I got to Benidorm, I was lead compare and lead dancer for, for the, you know, Thomas Cook cabaret here. It was spectacular, but there, there is that other side to it. You do work crazy hours. I remember that we had a, a coach strike in the Balearics and literally we'd, we'd work the whole day. I got off the transfer bus at about 11 o'clock at night and my, my head rep was there and he said, look, the, the coach strike is going ahead the next morning. You need to be in your, your hotels for about 5 a.m. to start when the guests waking up to, to let them know how, you know, there's no buses to the airport. So, you know, we were in a resort. We probably had about 1,500 people in this resort and we had to get them to the airport somehow. So the first guest I spoke to, they said, don't worry, we've got our own car or a, a hire car with, with Avis. So I phoned my boss and he said, look, can you jump in that car? Tell them we'll deal with all the paperwork, but don't let them give that car back to Avis, you know, take it off mm. them. So walked outside, you know, I'm, I'm 18 years old, walked outside and there was, I saw they had a Renault key and there was a brand new Renault Megane Sport. They pressed the button, that Megane Sport just lit up and I was like, right, yeah, I need that car today, by the way, guys. And, you know, we'll sort it all out for you, don't worry. We worked 36 hours on the trot, just going back and forth to the airport. We stole 14 cars <laughs> to get the guests. I mean, we were literally going around the resort, knocking open the Avis boxes and, and stealing the cars. They went bananas about it. <laughs> but the, we did it. And, you know, I think there was only us and Virgin Holidays that actually repped the whole airport, you know, because it was a 13-hour queue for mm. taxis, kids everywhere sleeping and everything like that. So we sent all the kids reps in there uh, to entertain them. We, it was a great time. You know, it was, there's no way you could train for that. It must have been very challenging when you were, managing and, and, and having a position of responsibility when people take these jobs expecting it to be 90% holiday and 10% work yeah 100% you did get a very few and they were very very quickly shown up for it mm. you know if somebody came over just expecting it to be a holiday then within a week they'd be on the flight back you know they, they just mm. wouldn't be able to handle it I got there my first night met up with all the reps my head rep was there Vicky and she said you know it got to about two o'clock in the morning and she said you do know you've got to be up for nine o'clock and you've got to be in your hotel for 9 30 i was like yeah yeah yeah. she goes you do know how many of those you know vodka red bulls you've had and i was like yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah, yeah, carry on <laughs> drinking of course 20 past nine in the morning she's banging on the door you know my first day i was like okay yeah fair play she gave me a verbal warning and then you know i was never late again sort of thing but it was well, I probably was but it was uh didn't, didn't get caught that you know the next time there was a lot of people that would come over not understanding what the job role was and They'd go one or two ways, you know, so you get people that come over there very quiet and this that, and the other and suddenly they've been put on stage, 300 people and they're just completely changing and go for it. Then you'd get the guys that come over. I'll never forget we had one guy, Andrew, that came over to Benidorm 
cocky as hell this guy was. Oh, I've been working in Cyprus, doing jet skis and this, that and the other. And I was doing a welcome meeting with him, did all the intros and said, right now, Andrew's going to tell you all about our trip to Valencia or whatever it was. You know, there's about 300 people probably in the audience and he was gone. I was like, where, okay, okay, well, no, Andrew's not going to talk to you about that. I'll do it instead. Carried on, did all the sales afterwards, said to the other reps, where, where the hell's Andrew? I no idea. We found him like crying his eyes out backstage. You know, I can't do this. I can't do this. And, and you know, he was home the next day. It certainly made the character, you know, it built the characters of a lot of people that I've stayed friends with for many years. And it's a very, very close knit community, the travel industry in, in all, all sectors of it. You must have uh, seen the best and the worst of humanity doing this sort of job, though. 100%. It was, you know, you give somebody the joy, of, you know, especially in their holiday, um, which unfortunately you don't really get the reps anymore, like like how, how we used to do it. But if you could make somebody someone's holiday or, you know, you teach a kid doing something. I got put in like the three and four year olds group as a kid's rep. Mm. And this kid, this little girl came and she was really, really quiet. And in the end, by after a couple of days, she sort of came out of a shell and she was, you know, laughing and jumping and singing and whatnot. Mm. Her dad came up to me as I was face painting. Yeah. And he was like, what have you done to my daughter? So he shit myself when he said it. He was like, he said, well, when we came on this holiday, she was, you know, completely insular. She wouldn't talk. Now she won't shut up. She's brilliant. She's like, so thank you so much, you know. And I was like, wow. Fuck, God, yeah, give me a heart attack there. But yeah. <laughs> on the other scale of it, you know, you get... The ones that used to gripe me were the, what I call the professional complainers. I had this hotel and you'd, you'd wait for them coming off the bus because they'd be the first ones off the bus stomping up to your desk and uh, you've sent me to the wrong bloody place. And I was like, what are you talking about? Well, where are you meant to be? You've sent me to Costa Blanca. I'm meant to be in Casablanca. <laughs> I was like, really? You know, it, Brilliant. seriously? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, can you just give me your paperwork? And it's, you know, I said it quite clearly states here, Alicante Airport, Benidorm. I thought Alicante Airport was some island off Morocco. And I was like, oh, God's sake. And, oh, dear me. You know, it, people that really just push your buttons. And she she did big time in the end. And I had somebody step in. But I actually run a Facebook group called Stories of Holiday Rep, which is there's about 17,500 of us. I think some of the newer reps just, did that actually really happen? You wouldn't see a bar call of 300 Thomas Cook guests, you know, crossing a street with 300 Tui guests on the other side. Mm. And the, on the other side of the street, you know, 200 Club 1830 guests, you know, it was those times, unfortunately, have disappeared. It's probably all gone because of social media, to be honest. You know, it's I work with a couple of the companies like that and they just don't do anything like it because everybody's got a phone in their hand now. You've got to be completely whiter than white. And, you know, some of the games that we used to play on Barkle, you, you just wouldn't get away with now. It would be impossible. You know, you'd be in the press the next day, if not sooner. <laughs> you do see all types of humanity. and But generally, people are abroad. You know, they're having fun. You just learn to deal with it. It sort of goes over your head a bit. There must have been times where you just look around you and think, how the hell have I got myself in this situation? One of the first times was in my second year in Menorca. I actually spoke a bit of Spanish, uh, thanks to Miss Falkingham back in uh, Taunton School. So I used to walk in, you know, nine times out of ten with a hangover in the morning and, you know, the hotel manager would come up to me, oh, uh, you're effing guess this and blah de blah I was like, okay what they done now sort of thing mm. this one particular morning you know this this couple had had a, a massive domestic in their room and, and smashed up the room so i've walked in and go okay look i'll go up there and chat to them no 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 no. guardia seville are on their way we're going up assess the damage then you need to kick them out of the hotel and it's like okay the guardia seville have turned up and i don't know if you you know if you've ever witnessed the guardia seville in spain they you don't mess with the guardia seville 
No. You know, they're, they're fully armed and they look mean. They, I thought, okay, well, no problem. I've got a bit of backup here. So anyway, turned up, guy opens the door in a um, leopard skin Speedos with his wife behind him. He's in a leopard skin bikini. Oh, for God's sake. And he's built <laughs> like a brick shit house as well. I was like, okay, you know, this is something's happened. These guys, you know, this is the manager of the hotel. You know, it's quite severe of what happened last night. So they let him in. They did a damage report. As we came back out, so I'm stood out outside the front door and they said, right, you know, we've done a damage report. You've got to tell them to leave. So I was like, no problem. I've got two armed police officers behind me. It's not a problem. They all pissed off, right. including the police. So I'm left there with this guy who's probably still pissed, who just smashed up his apartment at a blazing row. I've got to now tell him that he's got to leave his hotel. That was it. I'm you know, looking around. I'm in this tiny little apartment and sat down. And that's when the instinct kicks in. And I just sort of sat down and went, do you smoke? And he went, yeah. I was like, right, here's a cigarette. Unfortunately, mate, because what happened last night, you've got to leave. But I'll help you sort out a new place. And, you know, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll sort it out. And uh, there is going to be a bill. And it was fine. He went, okay, not an issue. You, you often found that a lot of people that did Club 1830, especially the, you know, the sales training that came from it, yeah. was unbelievable. And they went on to do really, really good careers. I think that's a really, really good observation, actually. You know, I've worked in recruitment all my life. And yeah, whenever I've seen holiday rep, whether it be chalet girls or people that have worked in PGL or 1830s or whatever, on the whole, if they've stuck it, or cruise ships is the other thing, if they've managed to stick that for any length of time, they've got something about them. And above all else, they've got that resourcefulness. They've got that ability to think laterally and to think how can they get out of situations or yeah. solve situations where there isn't a, a manual and a, a process and an infrastructure and a, and a button you press, you know. 100%. On that note, when have you really had to stretch that, that lateral thinking to, to solve a problem? When I left repping, it was sort of coming to the end of the time when reps were reps and the you know the travel industry they, they were basically trying to kick out all the old guard it went all more customer service rather than sales so there was quite a few of us that left i stayed in around benedorm and we set up a company uh, doing hotel advertising and i've not really worked for anybody up until now recently i mean even now the last three years i've been back in the travel industry i'm i'm sort of left my own devices out here but and, and more of an entrepreneurial role and mm. if you're in the sort of thing where you've got to do so many different roles and tasks when you're trying to build businesses and stuff it all came in handy you know and knowing yeah. that one thing that did line up with the two industries was there were times when you rep and you just thought fuck it i've had enough of this this mm. is just killing me now I've, I've almost blown out it was normally around june time where a lot of the reps thought that you go up and down constantly through the season and you learn to just deal with it and push through and go. And it's exactly the same as what I've been doing for many years with businesses side of it. We were going fantastic as a business just before the pandemic. And then suddenly you got this, it, it comes down and it all goes down and then it all yeah. gets back up for last year. And yeah, it's all going clear. And then you get the second wave and it's, and it's been up and down. So I think that's probably a lot of that has got me through it. And yeah. I think the, the other part is decision-making. As a rep, you really have to think on your feet quick. In, in a lot of instances and to make a decision and if, if it's something that's really not a problem or you know you deal with it and just brush it under and get rid of it and move on to the next thing and I think my girlfriend would say that that's probably one of the things that annoys her most about me but it was um <laughs> okay if it's not a problem I'm, I'm not interested just get on with it let's move on to things that actually matter and, and go forward and it does it, well, it certainly did set a good grounding for many many successful careers one thing that's maybe just a perception I've read too many books and watched too many shows on Dave or whatever it always seems that places in the holiday resorts, there's 
a, a very eclectic mix of people you have to do business with, some of which are, are above board, some not so much. Yeah. You know, you must have come into contact with some pretty interesting characters in your line of work. Not so much in, in Spain. In Benidorm, it was a little bit different because it was quite an established resort. The infrastructure was here. The stories that I've heard coming in from Greece, you know, for instance, completely different. Mm. Um, Goa, completely different. Down in Kenya, completely different. You do get to that stage where you think, you know, do these, could these things actually really happen? And the worst I got, you deal with all the bouncers and stuff. And yeah. one minute you're dealing with a group of people that have just arrived and you're welcoming into their hotel. Next minute you're out into the middle of town dealing with bouncers and then the strippers kicked off or this, that and the others happened or Sticky Vicky's not on or whatever. You know, it's like <laughs> you get those stories that come through that I, I remember going back and I was in Sturms actually in, in Taunton and uh, Shannon, a few mates of mine, they were going, Fuck off, that never happened. You know, I mean, the funniest one that always springs to mind was in Benidorm. Yeah. I repped a like four-star hotel that these two lads have been. It was their first holiday away and their parents had obviously paid for it. You know, they were so wet behind the ears and they sort yeah. of came up to their and said, what can we do? What can we do? I said, like, we've got a bar call tonight, you know. I'll tell you what, we don't normally pick up from here, but I'll come and pick you up. I'll take you out. So I picked them up and, you know, we had about 100 people on this bar call or whatever. And, you know, generally the first few bars, it's all about the games and... They were loving it, you know, for the first three bars. And then the fourth bar, I lost them. And they just disappeared. So, okay, no worries. And carried on with the night and then went into the hotel the next morning. And after about an hour being there, they, they sort of turned up and came really sheepishly up to the desk. And was like, what, you know, what happened to you two last night? We had a great night. We were out till like 4 a.m. Uh, we had a bit of a problem in that third bar, they said. And I was like, oh, well, okay. Well, um, I, I started making out with this girl on the dance floor, but I knew her boyfriend was there. I was like, oh, okay. And she pulled me into the girls' toilets. I was like, right. And then, uh, yeah, we, we went into one of the stalls and I was like, okay. And, and she got on top of me and then her leg fell off. <laughs> the way he said it, though, was like, it was so, you know, they didn't leave the hotel again for the rest of their holiday, but they were so serious <laughs> about amazing. it. That was Benidorm, you know, and, you know, Benidorm is Benidorm. It, it's an amazing city so ahead of its time when it comes to tourism and you know the way they've built the beaches and the the infrastructure here and a night out in Benidorm is is like no other place you know you, you yeah. really could completely walk into anything any kind of situation good or bad unfortunately and and that's why it's been so popular for so many years but it's always changing I very rarely go into Benidorm you know I'm on the outskirts it's good to have that sort of that capacity just on your doorstep and if you, if you want to do stuff it's it's all there Looking backwards again then, Sam, what do you think have you taken from Taunton through your life to today? I think it's the confidence, to be honest. Being able to walk into any kind of situation whether and, and any kind of room. I'm as happy to walk into a room filled with a bunch of reps as I am walking into a room full of CEOs. Yeah. And the confidence to do that is quite unique. And I think that's probably what Taunton School gave into, you know, you understand the the structure and the hierarchy in life. It's helped me a huge amount in my life. Fantastic. Traffic Island Discs. We ask guests to think of three songs. The first one is a song that reminds them of growing up, of that period of their life where they were transitioning from 
from adolescence to adulthood. The second one is a, a song that reminds them of a place. And obviously our, our shared background is, is Taunton, so it would be of Taunton. And then the third one is just for something that makes them happy. And then the, yeah. the last thing we look at is a day, if you could, you'd love to relive. It, it has to be anything by madness, to be honest. You know, that, that was yeah. a particular group that, that stuck out for me growing up. It reminds me of Taunton, though. Gamal von Buller actually phoned me because he was, he was talking about this. We had this, like, art thing we had to do for in, when we did art in, what, third year or fourth year. It was with his teacher, foreign teacher. She was brilliant. But she basically said, look, I want you to draw a picture based on a song you like. And this song going around at the time between a group of us, I, was, I thought I was being funny, but there was a, what, a song called by Nothing Nice called Nasty Girl, which was basically, like, all about his whips and change and sex and all this sort of thing. And, was, <laughs> and I drew this, like, I'm, I'm put together this like collage of this picture of this girl with like Pamela Anderson or something out of Baywatch in leathers or what I don't know what it was it was something stupid but I got such mm. in trouble for it but yeah <laughs> it, it, uh, it came up the other day actually in conversation that because I, I got a right bollocking for that but it was um, <laughs> fair enough okay uh, but happy there's a band called Squeeze uh, very yes. similar to Madness I went out for lunch with them a few years ago and um, but their one song is called Sunday Street which is an amazing song. And it's one of those ones that if you're in the car, just bang that on, it builds up, and it's such a good, happy song. I thought I knew all of their songs, and I only heard it a few weeks ago. Um, wow. But it's just, it's constantly on a playlist now. I love it. If I could live, relive one day, uh, do you know what? I'd love, and it sounds stupid, I'd love to just relive one day of old school repping again. Really? And uh, got a friend out here who runs a, a Stag and Hen group company. Mm. And we said, you know, once this is all over, we're going to go and do a bar crawl again just for the hell of it. You know, we haven't yeah, done it yeah. in years. Let's just go and do a bar crawl for, a fu- you know, for some fun. You know, you'd be asleep and, in your points at half past 10, though. Oh, do you know what? I did, it, it, is, it is. I probably would. You know, we, we did a reps reunion in Manchester a couple of years ago. And um, yeah, I don't know how I got through it. I ended up bringing a DJ over from Benidorm and we had such a good night in the middle of Manchester. Every bar was shut by two o'clock. They were empty. I ended up having to leave and get straight back on a flight over to Alicante at like seven o'clock in the morning after a whole night on it. <laughs> and I, uh, yeah, I managed to blag like the whole of the um, emergency exit. So mm. I just got on the plane, fell asleep, woke up in Alicante and two rows in front of me, these two guys stood up. And I was like, I know them from somewhere. And it was Jimmy Anderson and Mark Woods. No way. That were flying over to do training down in Lamanga. And um, God knows what I said to them. It was, yeah, it was one of those. I can't deal with the hangovers anymore. I mean, how the hell we used to go and do no. bar calls and whatnot and get up at being your, you know, being your hotel at nine o'clock or eight thirty, and um, I couldn't do it. You know, I was actually saying to a girlfriend the other day, I wish they'd actually bring in the lockdown again just for the week because I'm I'm sick and tired of these like Tuesday and Wednesday morning hangovers. <laughs> but, uh, I reckon my hangovers increase by an extra day for every decade. I'm currently on three days. I reckon not quite that bad, but certainly yeah. certainly a good day. After, after a full session, I, I I ended up last Saturday with the commercial director of Tui and in, in just for a birthday, and mm. I went down for one drink. This is going to sound really really bad, but I have a five year old <laughs> daughter, and, and you know we're all friends, and, and kids come out. You know when you go out in Spain, mm. kids come out a long time with you, and we'd only planned to go for a couple of drinks, and uh, suddenly turned around and the shots had come out, and I looked over and my five year old daughter was with a shot glass in her hand full. Oh no! And you know we were doing. Uh, I don't know what it was, vodka or something like that. And I've just sort of like leapt across the table and made it. Don't, don't worry, it's apple juice. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, fucking hell, thank God for that. But why is she doing shots at the table? I'm shit, it's half 11 at night. Right, we've got to get home, you know? Like, <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's 
you know, she'll, she'll grow up with it. And, you know, as I've seen many kids do out here and I'd love her to go in the travel industry because you really do. Yeah. It's one of those amazing industries. And I, oh. I was out of it for many years and then got back into it three years ago. Oh, you love it. Do, yeah. I, yes, I was in Russia a few years ago. We did a Baltic cruise in, and we were in St. Petersburg. And, and one of the excursions we did was included a meal and they served vodka with this meal. And they poured shots of vodka for everybody, including the kids. And my daughter would have been eight, I reckon, at the time. My son was not interested, but Evelyn was insistent that she was going to drink this shot of vodka. <laughs> so I thought to myself, look, she's going to put it to her mouth, take one tiny sip and then spit it out all over the place and never touch it again. No, she necked a lot. <laughs> Down it went. A bit of a bit of spluttering and a bit of you know a bit of eye watering, but no, she 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 drained it. I was like, right, there goes my dad of the year award yet again. Sam, last question for me, just to wrap up, really. Who over the years do you feel has inspired you the most? I'd probably have to say my mum, to be honest. My mum and family, seeing what they did about building Snazaroo and and going through those years, I saw the. The fun times, the bad times, and you know I was there the whole way through it, and you know right to the point when they when they sold it. it got to be a family of of hundred percent. I'll tell her it's Fairwater, but it's, um, <laughs> she, she often says I brought you up well. I said you didn't bring me up well. Fairwater did, but it was you know you know certainly that is the the point where I was probably where I, I look and you know mm. modelled myself on quite a lot of, of what I want to do in my life. I, I would I tried the whole rat racing. Mm. It wasn't for me. Um, I, I did. I lived outside of London for about a year, year and a half. And then, yeah, it was, just wasn't for me. It was that, that whole mundane of, right, you work five days a week, you go out Friday night, mm. you, you play a bit of sport on the weekends and then you go and do it again. That, yeah, not a chance again would I ever do that. Listen, Sam, love chatting. It's been really good to, to catch up and really good to hear yeah. your, your story. Thanks so much for taking part. Well, this is the time of the show we call Mass Let me ask, how hard-hitting can this podcast get? I'm not quite sure what you mean by that. So one of the things about I've observed about how society is changing so fast versus where we were in 96, say, what it seems to me is that one of the biggest changes with the youngest generation, the idea of gender has become increasingly a relative thing. And I don't know whether that is just because of where I live now or whether that's a global thing. I really don't know. How would you feel about your kids identifying as a different gender? Well, I'm not sure I want to go there, to be honest. That's why I asked how hard it is. Yeah. That's thinking really, that is a really hard question. I've got no issue at all really? with sexuality. I don't have an issue with gay, straight, bi, whatever. I think that we're well past that point where that, is something you even think about, really, to be honest. It's people have their preferences and that's cool. But the gender thing, I really struggle with because I just feel like it's been born out of online chitter-chatter and some sort of fairly questionable studying that's not really based on facts and science, I guess. And also, like, there's a alarming correlation with gender dysphoria and things like autism. And I think that's causing real problems because people aren't being diagnosed properly. It's really challenging because there's the other side of it which says live and let live and respect people's decisions and so on. But the problem with transgenderism is that they get trapped in this no man's land 
between being recognised and understood as a particular gender and not. And the argument of gender fluidity is only really carrying water for those who are already bought into it, is my view, but massively. And if it's your child, that would probably be one of the hardest things that you could help them through, I think. I think absolutely right. I I do. I think genuinely, if one of the kids said, I feel like I'm trapped in the wrong body, the first thing I'd want to do is understand their internet activity, because I think kids are very, very susceptible to trends and fads and persuasion from peers. uh, And these ideas become... In fact, just so for example, what they see in schools quite often is somebody comes out as transgender and then very rapidly several others do the same thing. And people haven't got to the bottom of is whether that's a genuine thing, i.e. somebody's got the bravery to do it and others think, finally, I, you know, I'm not alone, I can be myself. Or is it trend following, like Evelyn's being picky with meat at the minute and keeps pretending you know keeps sort of threatening to be vegetarian for example I've heard her and her friends talking about it on online and i know that's a relatively minor thing in the grand scheme of things and you should support their choices to a point but i think that's what i would want to do first and foremost make sure they have access to the right counseling and support from experts rather than just saying yeah yeah great you know let's get you down to the clinic your first reaction then would be one of skepticism yeah which is cool i mean i bring it up because I, at the moment, I'm working with a transgender person and it's been a terribly interesting experience for me because I, like you said, whilst different forms of sexuality versus the 90s are currently in 2020, absolutely now now accepted. I don't think we've gone the whole way at all. And it's been a very interesting experience for me because I've become aware of these new positions and I was... I think really a few years before, I think I was very skeptical about it. And I think that I can understand why people are. I don't think I've even been converted if you, if you like, but I think that I, for example, like the argument over transgender bathrooms, right now, I, I feel like I really understand that in a way that I didn't. So did you see that case recently? In, in, I think it was in California, actually. Lou, this is, this is interesting. I'm interested in your take on this. So there's a spa in LA somewhere that have a, sort of steam room that's closing it's probably up. like the one that i go to every week man yeah possibly it's male female segregated and and also it's not it's not age segregated so you can go in as a 12 year old and you can go in as a 50 year old somebody that's self-declaring themselves as female went into the spa waving around big old mr kanish and causing an absolute storm of you know a lot of complaints about it and it's causing riots because well, not riots like massive fights because People are saying, if you have an issue with genital preference, you're, you know, you're transphobic. It's very, very, it's very difficult to answer because, I, and I actually don't know how I feel about it, honestly, because I can see both sides so clearly. One thing I do know, one thing I have absolute confidence in, 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 in having a bit of knowledge about is I think that it's pretty presumptuous of somebody to presume that they understand what it feels like to be a particular gender so i know what it feels like to be male Mm. and my understanding and experience of that is not to be messed with you can't just wake up one day and say i feel male because Mm. you've no idea what that feels like having and that's and and we have it easy (laughs) you know seriously you know being a woman 
and going through what you guys have to go through from being a little girl to an, to an adult and then through perimenopause, menopause and old, old age and so on. But that's a lived experience. If I suddenly decided that actually I feel female, then I've got nothing to base that on other than reading a book. And then I'd love to know what, what you think, though. Obviously. The flip side of that that I realized is that imagine how much bravery you would have to have to basically make a choice that everyone will condemn you for every single day of your life. Mathematically, you'd only do that if you were absolutely certain of it, because no one would choose to go through so much hell. Yeah, you wouldn't wouldn't choose that. But from my point of view with my children, I'm not quite as bothered with my boys, because I think they've gone past that point that, you know, they know who they are. But certainly with my daughter, I think we have, I'm fairly confident that we've got a close enough relationship that if she felt like she was questioning stuff, she'd talk to me about it. We work it out together, we talk about it, and then we just see what's in front of us and work on it together, you know? Yeah. And I, I just don't feel like some of the people who have come out as transgender or unsure whatever i just don't feel like they maybe have had the supportive parents behind them to discuss that and they almost certainly haven't maybe that's that's a generalization i'm not i don't want to be shot down i'd like to think that i could support even children with that being honest well, i will probably not put this out there because it is such a toxic and inflammatory subject i'd almost yeah, be more I comfortable know. talking about race than this to be honest because you really can get on the wrong side of some pretty militant people by having an opinion. I don't feel qualified to know much about it. I, me, as a 40-year-old heterosexual male, having been comfortable being a male all of my life, I don't think I have any right to assume knowledge on a subject I know nothing about. But I can't help having an opinion on it, I suppose. No, of course. I mean, that's everyone has an opinion on everything. That's being human. What I do know is I know how deviant men can be i know how obsessive men can be and i know how important safe spaces are for women and how much how much work they've had to do to get people to recognize the threats that they experience on a daily basis just a quick search of youtube and you'll see videos of you know, women being harassed in the street there's a video that i saw recently of somebody having their drink spiked there's some crazy shit really? going on out there yeah. oh me women have faced a daily onslaught of microaggressions and threats and just having to behave and think about things that we don't have to so for biological men to assume female identity i can understand why that needs very careful looking at and there are deviant people out there that would use a growing liberal movement to manipulate it for their own gains and even if it's only one in a million doesn't matter for me we haven't listened to women's voices enough over the years and if they're saying which they are in quite in growing numbers i'm not comfortable with self-identification i'm not comfortable with biological men in female only spaces we have to listen to them and we have to take it seriously and drowning these people out with death threats and harassment claims and all the crazy mm. shit that goes on is, is is a bit much look there's nothing controversial about saying i need more information right yeah and secondly of course it's a very very cutting edge subject but um just to be fair you're talking about the extremist wing of that movement which i think i, I don't know if that represents the majority and i'm sure it probably doesn't 
No. You know, there's a couple of people in, in our circle that have pretty strong views and they're pretty aggressive. These are the kind of people that wouldn't think twice about writing to your boss or slandering you publicly and all this sort of stuff. Controversy, Matt, is the bedfellow of high listening figures. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I did. Actually, it's funny you should say that, right? So I was thinking about this. So the one thing that's really baffling me about our listening figures is how some episodes get really good numbers and some don't. And I've never really understood why, because there's nothing outwardly obvious until you listen whether it's any good or not. We live in a time when it's, it's very dicey saying the wrong thing. I think we have to kind of tackle it head on because society is changing in that way. And to bring it back to your original discussion point, in 1996, none of these things were a big issue because <laughs> absolutely all of them weren't aware to the general public and they were suppressed. And if you were gay in 1996, your life was much harder than if you're gay now. Yeah. So yeah. our society has, has evolved in a kind of progressive direction since that point. And I think that's worth taking into, into consideration. We grew up in a time when it was people were much less aware, you know? Yeah. Just go back to the, the, the points around controversy gets listeners. So our two biggest performing episodes were episode one, where obviously people listened and then halfway through realised how crap it was and turned it off. Uh, and then... Uh, <laughs> I think they were turned off by the square shoes. It, yeah, exactly. Then episode seven, which is around Bridgerton and the narcissist test. Right. And then, you know, the rest are pretty consistent with each other. And there's one or two that got really low. So episode four, which I think is a really good episode, actually. It's hardly got any listeners. So it, I wonder whether people are looking at it You're and they're thinking, wanking, man. no, that's episode three. Again, that's like quite low figures, really. Mm. So... I wonder whether if you call the episode something obviously controversial, people will put an episode yeah. out there just putting like, I don't know, calling it free porn or something or, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Interview with Tom Cruise or right. <laughs> Boris Johnson tells all or something. We'll get like millions of listeners because people clearly are d deciding whether to listen based on the short description of the I mean of look the, um, of the I, I, I just don't know you know what were the figures for the smooth my balls episode pretty good yeah so yeah we're yeah that was one of the better ones as well so yeah not bad so in fact it is one of the better bed. performing episodes that one <laughs> it comes back to to this idea of like you basically are responsible for shepherding people into a world where these things are now being questioned and a lot of people are not comfortable that they are being questioned. A lot of people think that questioning these attitudes is are the most important thing that you can possibly do. I really don't know where I fit in. And I really don't think that no. as someone who hates authority, I really hate it by the way. I just don't know what the answer is. The thing I struggle with is the, where the line between state and by extension school and home is. So the one hand, right. I really don't like the idea of, for example, very religious families deciding that their kids shouldn't learn about homosexuality, for example. I find that very uncomfortable. And I think that should be, well, frankly, illegal. But then there's the other side of it where this stuff we've just been talking about with, with, with transgenderism. So I don't feel like there's enough understanding generally in the public domain about the issues around this. So to have schools positioning it as a fait accompli and an understood thing and that doesn't fit well with me So it's kind of like saying, well, I want there to be absolute freedom of speech, but then also I want absolute freedom of speech to come with some caveats. Do you know what I mean? But, so, but Matt, 
sorry to interrupt, but are you aware that that was exactly what people said about homosexuality in the 80s and 90s? Oh, completely, exactly. And that's why I find it so so confusing to think about because it's like, is this a fad? Is this a thing? Is it kind of born out of some overzealous interpretations of psychology or whatever? You're a parent and you're yeah. responsible for other people. It doesn't matter what I think because I'm not responsible for anybody. No. Going back to your question earlier about what, what you want, your children to be like i think more than anything else i want them to have curiosity and be willing and prepared to question i think that's one thing that, that binds us all together as people isn't it like you know within this podcast group is we're all curious questioning people yeah. we don't take things at face value yeah we refuse to accept absolutely things as absolutes to answer your question one of the many questions tonight what is the answer with your children i don't know ever what the answer is I just hope that whatever it is that I come up with is okay. <laughs> I don't even feel like adult enough to answer some of these questions from my children. That's really okay, because as Socrates, the father of Western thought, famously said, all I know is I know nothing. And if it's good enough for Socrates, it's good enough for me. Josh and Johnny aren't with us tonight because they're both locked in work hell. So... I can only assume that Josh has been asked to reshoot for the 57th time the scene in which he is killed by, I don't know. A werewolf uh, in his new movie. We should consider giving giving a shout out to Josh because his new movie was just announced in Deadline, I think it was, this week. It's called War Hunt and Josh is starring alongside Mickey Rourke in this World War II era horror movie about werewolves i think in the forests of eastern europe in which josh i think does have a spectacular death scene there you Sounds go shit i can't yeah. wait to watch i know it. i know me neither I, i've always wanted <laughs> to see josh meet an unpleasant end by a werewolf seeing him being eaten by a werewolf is a must for anybody i think i mean cinematic gold isn't it yeah johnny i can only assume is having to redraft for the 50th time a particular piece of equipment designed to suck even more fossil fuels out of the earth or, or something. i mean he's just doing his bit for the planet so i thought we do rather than taunter matters we do community matters the same format but from different places coming to you from the isle of wight south cheshire and taunton massachusetts this is community matters and by the way, just as just for some local laughs, if you're kind of a dick and you're from Massachusetts, you're known as a masshole. <laughs> is, is that actually true? Of course it is. Because I actually know someone who's from Western Massachusetts, which is, yeah, it's like, yeah, you're a masshole. Brian Inawuru asks, I have these bees around the house. Is there any effective product I can get to get rid of them? I appreciate any help. And then he posted a picture of a few bees minding their own business. And <laughs> he, received, pictures of that. he received a lot of sure. online trolling because of, in some way, discriminating against local wildlife, which I guess is indicative of the conversation we've just had and, and its <laughs> ramifications for society. Elijah D'Souza has commented, the only way you got stung is by agitating them. You deserved it. And if you're trying to kill them, I hope they get the rest of your family too. <laughs> what I can God. conclude by that is that Elijah D'Souza is probably a Trump 2020 voter. <laughs> <laughs> he was followed by Hoss Delgado. By the way, an interesting point that I think your guest brought up. A lot of people from Taunton, Massachusetts have Portuguese ancestry. Hoss Delgado 
who says, like, you must genuinely eat rocks if you don't understand that those bees are the reason the plants in your yard even exist. So a couple of hours later, Kerry Burgoyne posted separately on a different thread, anyone else have any issues with no bees or pollinators? <laughs> My plants are suffering, and I've realized there's almost no bees here. So it's almost like she wants to get the bees from Brian and Awaru's house. Maybe those two guys should meet up. <laughs> could even have an affair. <laughs> they could pollinate and pollinate maybe they could get the bees together and also they could start a family there you go but it's interesting that bees are a big part of the taunts and matters issues at the moment mm. you know bees are a global issue but to see it on such a local level like that's quite interesting really anyway, on nantwich community it seems like window cleaning is a topic of conversation. It says, morning, I'm after a recommendation for a window cleaner in Nantwich. I want a company who go up on ladders and don't use the easy clean system to clean upstairs windows and all sills too. Our current window cleaners are hopeless, unfortunately. Thank you. Ah. So, so Johnny was on the call. He's missing out on business here. by. <laughs> taking care of his actual job he's got leads down in somerset and now in cheshire as well we do have a good review from the episode where ben Bowley was talking it says dear straight from the hot tap i thoroughly enjoyed the interview episode with ben Bowley. he can captain my ship any day if he looks as good as he sounds ah there you go. I can confirm that Ben does look as good as he sounds. You know, maybe write in and send us your details. We'll pass them over. Could be a new part of the Straight and Hot Tap program, which is yeah, matchmaking. Um, Lonely I'll Hearts. Just, you've got my um, number, haven't you, Matt, though? Can yeah, I have. Yeah. On? yeah. Ben said <laughs> he'll call you. You don't need to call him. He'll. Off. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like Landswitch and Massachusetts have got relatively nice communities. When I looked at the community pages on the Isle of Wight where I'm from, it certainly took a rather dark turn. So, Jay Taylor writes in, Hi, we'd just like to warn dog walkers, kids or adults, with no shoes, there is glass smashed on the walkway at the end of Harbour Wall. Unfortunately, I don't have a dustpan or brush to sweep up some scum's glass. So this is all well and good, but he doesn't actually post where the location is. So we can only assume that every single Harbour Wall on the entire Isle of Wight, which is about 50 miles worth, contains smashed glass. So... If you're on the Isle of Wight, put some shoes on and clean up after yourself. The Neil McCarthy writes, A little stroll around sundown at 10pm. The heady smell of takeaways hidden beneath the all-encompassing stench of skunk. Shop customers flicking bottle caps and rubbish up the road as hapless shop assistants pointlessly try to sweep the entrance. Groups of lads gather around the dealer like moss to the light. Drunk dads trying to get into closed-down hotels and collapsing in the street whilst a nearby hotel resident in pyjamas sucks desperately on a cigarette. Police helicopters scan the back of the town for the usual likely suspects whilst pointless unmanned CTTV cameras blink their little lights to replace the local Bobby. Ten minutes in the life of Sandown. Holy shit. Yeah. And then, I know... That is the most poignant thing I've heard all day. I know. I did show a little tear when I read that. But then Adrian Crilly <laughs> replies to the comment. He just writes, wish you were here. Nice. That's it. <laughs> that is the, one of the most disturbing images. Where is that, man? Sundown on the Isle of Wight. Sundown <laughs> has a real opportunity to regenerate itself. But it's held back by one thing. 
What? White Link Ferries. Right. White Link Ferries is the reason why Sandowns hit the skids. All those holidaymakers that could come and spend their money and regenerate the town are stuck in Portsmouth waiting for the boat that never comes. <laughs> are they often delayed? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yes. Let's not go down that road again. No. Karen Gravel's just moved to the island, which a lot of people want to do. My family and I are moving to Shanklin on the 26th of April. Can anyone please recommend a mobile hairdresser and a nail person, please? Eric Smith then replies, there are plenty on the mainland. Nice. So you're welcome to the Isle of Wight. So when nice. someone appears in your garden smoking a cigarette at one in the morning, there's a clear suspect. Eric Smith. Yeah. I reckon Eric Smith works for Whiteling Ferries, though. He's saying plenty on the mainland to try and get Karen Gavel to go and have her nails done in Portsmouth and therefore spend £200 on a return trip. But what's interesting is the very same Eric Smith, just a couple of days later, posts, wanted a gardener to cut a small 10-foot by 6-foot lawn ASAP. Other work required includes branch hedge cutting, cash paid. So first of all, Eric, 10-foot by 6-foot, you could eat up the pair of fucking scissors, mate. Eric, how about Eric. fuck off? Mm. Eric, how about get a life? <laughs> no doubt Eric is a Brexit yeah. voter. But what's really funny is that James Taylor comments, well, Eric, there are plenty on the mainland. <laughs> Brilliant. Nice one. <laughs> so there yeah, you go. That, that, that's that's great, Eric. guys. Day of the life of the Isle of Wight. <laughs> that takes us to the end of the show. Thanks so much for listening. This week's shout-out goes to Push, the personal training studio of Jason Andrade in Taunton, Massachusetts. Jason will give you a personalised workout plan and work with you to achieve your fitness and weight loss goals. Go check him out. This was straight from the hot tap.